welcome to This Speech Life, an audio course and podcast from SpeechTherapyPD.com, exploring all things related to school-based SLP practice. I'm your host, Caitlin Lopez, MSCCC SLP, a school-based SLP with over 10 years of experience. In each episode, we will cover three need-to-know aspects of the topic, two resources related to the topic, and one actionable strategy for tomorrow. All right, everyone, welcome to today's course. We are so excited to have the fabulous Megan McCarty here joining us. My name is Caitlin Lopez. I am the host of This Speech Life, the podcast for school-based SLPs. And today we have the fabulous Megan McCarty with us. She is going to talk to us about all things related to school-based practice regarding cultural responsiveness and cultural humility and just why that's important for us and ways that we can do a better job at that if we might not be doing those things already. All right, everyone. Like I said, we're excited to have her here. If you don't know who she is, let me introduce her. But before I do that, I'm going to go ahead and read our financial disclosures. I'm Caitlin Lopez, the host of the podcast, This Speech Life, and I do receive compensation for this episode. I have no non-financial disclosures to report. Megan doesn't have any financial disclosures to report other than she will receive an honorarium for appearing on this podcast episode from speechtherapypd.com. All right, so let's go ahead and jump into it. I am excited to introduce to all of you Megan. Megan J. McCarty is a speech and language therapist with an intense passion for equity and cultural responsiveness. Megan comes from a long line of educators and got her start in the field of education as a substitute teacher. As time progressed, she transitioned into teaching full-time as a fourth grade teacher, K through five as an ELA interventionist, and sixth through eighth ELA interventionist. During her earlier years in education, she became increasingly interested in phonetics, linguistics, and literacy, and we pulled her to the dark side. Just kidding. As this fascination intensified, she decided to pursue a career in speech-language pathology, ultimately receiving her master's degree in communicative sciences and disorders from New York University. Megan chose a career in speech-language pathology to elevate children's voices, support families, and be a proponent of equity, inclusion, and cultural responsiveness. She's a native of Southern California and grew up in the San Gabriel Valley. When Megan isn't busy being an SLP, she enjoys spending time with family, friends, cooking, traveling, and going on adventures. A fun fact about Megan is that she loves learning languages. She's learned Spanish and even took Arabic in college. She aims to be fluent in Spanish, Arabic, ASL, and then the last part got cut off. What's that last language that you want to be fluent in? Gosh, I don't remember. I was saying a lot of things. <laughs> I wrote a lot. <laughs> um, so ASL. I, yeah. Well, you know, you have your goal set high. I met Megan at the California Speech and Hearing Association, and I just couldn't wait to have her on the podcast. She has so much energy, and you can tell that she's really passionate about our topic today. So, and she, I, the other thing I really love about Megan is she is a speech language pathologist, but through the eyes of an educator and through that 
that piece of, you know, we, we as speech therapists, we're there in the schools, we're there to support the educational piece. And she really understands that too, at a deeper level. So Megan, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. I'm nervous, but I'm also excited. It's going to be fantastic. Okay. So Megan, what are three things that we need to know about cultural responsiveness? Three things. So I try to do a good job of like mixing in my personal experience and advice with some research. So I'll start off first with a research center that specializes in cultural responsivity. So it's called the Center for Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning. And they have some research and they have, I guess, kind of like a pedagogy that's called Validate, Affirm, Build, and Bridge. And that pedagogy talks about how when students feel validated, when they feel affirmed, when you're building with students, when you're bridging with students, they feel more included. And when students feel included, they perform their best. So it's really great. I highly recommend um, people check out that site, but it talks a lot about ways to promote inclusion of multilingual students and multidialectal students where they feel as though their language is an asset and not a deficit. Awesome. Okay. Can you say that website or that center one more time? Because I didn't catch it as I'm trying to take notes here. What was the name of it? So it's called the Center for Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning. And their website is www.culturallyresponsive.org. Okay, perfect. Awesome. And then that pedagogy that they have, that framework is validate, affirm, is it build and bridge? Yes, build and bridge. VAB, V-A-B-B for short as an acronym. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much. And I love that idea of of validating our multilingual, you know, multidialectical students and affirming them in who they are. So that's that's fantastic. Okay, so that's that's kind of the first bit that you have for us is to check them out. What is something else that we need to know? I think something that people need to know about being culturally responsive is it's really not that hard. It's not that hard. You just got to do it. You don't have to do a lot of research or like have or super ornate lesson plans. Like you just have to jump and do it. So I work with a lot of, I've worked with a wide range of students. So I've worked in the San Gabriel Valley. I've worked in areas that have predominantly Asian students. I've worked in areas that have predominantly Latino students. I've worked for the city of Beverly Hills. That's predominantly white and Persian Jewish students. So I've worked in a lot of different areas with a lot of different kids. And I found that some of the best ways to be culturally responsive is A, to learn about their culture. You know, what holidays are relevant to them and how can you celebrate those holidays? As speech pathologists, we have a really great opportunity to customize a lot of the work and services that we do to our students. So what holidays are they celebrating? For example, I've learned about the Lunar New Year uh, when I was working with my predominantly Asian students. And that's something that I've kept. I've learned about Hanukkah Harry and different uh, high Jewish holidays because I had a lot of students who were Jewish. So that's something that I've kept with me. I've learned about different parts of Latino culture. There's a lot. (laughs) There's a lot that I've learned about Latino culture because that's the base and the core of the students that I work with. But knowing about cultural holidays and events, knowing about music, music is so powerful. I think that music is like the cornerstone of every culture. So knowing about their music, what artists do they like? 
it costs nothing to like play music in the background during a speech session or have a dance break where students can select a song. So like learning about music and also learning about food, the food that they like to eat, you know, costs nothing to, to do that type of research. So I think the second thing I want people to know about cultural responsivity is that it's not hard. It's a lot of easy access points and entrance points. All we have to do is hop on the Google Schmoogler, do some research, and students will feel so validated and they'll feel so seen. And they just, it really creates like these long lasting memories for them. That's awesome. And that's really, I love how you brought up all the different cultures you've learned about. I think that that's really fun. And I'm also thinking of really fun ways that I can bring students into that. Why don't you teach me? You know, asking them questions like, why why is this holiday special to you? What is something special that your family does? And then what is something that everyone does? Because I know like even with like really big mainstream holidays like Christmas, each individual family that might celebrate it has their own ways of celebrating that, you know, and understanding that piece too. But I think that is so fun to just jump in and learn. And I really love your point too about it doesn't have to be some big ornate, you know, lesson plan or whatever. And and that's, I think that's really fun. And then your point of music and food. And I've learned so much about reggaeton from my students that I didn't know before. Uh, (laughs) and so that's been really fun to like have those because I, there was a group of students that they wanted to have a dance party. And I said, okay, if we get through this stuff first, we can have a dance party. Just like you said, have those dance breaks. And then I said, okay, what's the song going to be? And it's the artist right now is eluding me. Bad Bunny. It wasn't Bad Bunny. This was a couple years ago, but I do have students now asking for Bad Bunny. (laughs) Um, and I can't remember who it was, but anyway, you know, that was the song that we listened to for, for a while. And then I learned about other artists too, and who was cool and who wasn't cool and who was, you know, and, and it, I think giving the students the chance to be kind of the expert in the room can be really fun for them too. Yeah. I just think (laughs) the piece about giving the child the opportunity to be the expert in the room is really big. It's a great way to like have child led services and child led sessions. And also like you reduce so much of your planning time. If you just say to kids like, Hey kids, like what music are you into? Like what cultural holidays are you celebrating? And they tell you, and it's like, I work with a lot of middle school and high school kids. So it's like, okay, great. We're going to practice a functional skill. We're going to do some research. We're going to read through the research. We're going to come up with like a main idea, so on and so forth. So I think it's a really great way to like have students lead the session. They feel really, you know, in control of what's going on and they feel so much more accomplished and they feel seen. Like it just really like boosts their energy and it just really gives them a positive experience, especially as you get with older students, like middle school, high school students, I find. Yeah, I can totally see that of, you know, the older students are probably going to be much more into the music of their culture. Or I know that for, for my husband, it really wasn't until he was older that he really started to identify and love his culture. And I can see giving students a safe space to do that and affirming them in their culture, especially if that's not what they're seeing represented, can be so huge for them. 
Definitely, definitely huge. And I think a lot of students, especially BIPOC students, have that kind of similar experience where they don't necessarily identify with or celebrate or feel a a closeness to their culture just because it's not something that is ever really celebrated outside of their families uh, during their childhood. So being that vessel uh, to affirm students and celebrate them just really has lifelong lasting impact, positive impact. For sure. For sure. Thank you also for like just these great points of like, you know, it cuts down our own planning time. I'm always looking for those opportunities. And, you know, we're recording this episode in May and that's like for sure just before we hopped on, Megan and I were texting each other about like, oh my goodness, we're almost there. We're almost there to the end of the year. All right. So what is your third point that you want to bring up when it comes to cultural responsiveness? I think my third point is like a, it's a point, but it's also like an action item, um, an action item for us as SLPs and us as SLPs working within the education system. So I think we first have to understand our multilingual and multidialectal students. Like we really need to understand them and understand what they are bringing to us in terms of like their culture. And once we have that understanding, we need to position ourselves to advocate for those students. And you'll hear me say multidialectal and multilingual because I feel like if we're talking about cultural responsivity uh, within the field of speech language pathology, like my focus is really about multilingual students and multidialectal students. So I just wanted to, to clarify that. But I think like, as I digress, I think as SLPs, we have to understand our students. And once we understand our students, we need to advocate for them in the school setting and advocate for them not just having an opportunity to feel seen and heard within our setting, but having an opportunity to feel seen and heard throughout their academic experience. Awesome. Do you have any examples of maybe some ways that you've done that in the past so that we can kind of grasp that idea a little bit deeper? Yeah. So I think one thing that I have done is I've gone in and I've talked to SPED coordinators and ed specialists and teachers just about goals that are appropriate. I've talked to them about linguistic delays versus a linguistic difference. Um, It's something that I see really frequently. I work with predominantly like Black and Latino students. So I constantly see students, inherit students with goals that are not appropriate. For instance, I'll get a lot of TH goals, which you're not supposed to give because TH is a standardized American English only like a phoneme, but I get goals like that. So just explaining those sorts of things. I think also advocating for teachers not to center uh, standardized American English so much. I think what I see a lot, especially with like English language learners is they spend so much time thinking about what the word is in English instead of just communicating, you know, instead of just communicating the first word that comes to them. You know, the first word that comes to you might be in Spanish. It might be in African-American English. Like it doesn't matter. I think as SLPs, like us advocating for linguistic diversity and not linguistic monolithicism. I hope I said that correctly. I think that's really important. (laughs) Awesome. I really like, you know, your first point of appropriate goals. I know I, I work in a predominantly Latino community. And even when I was working in 
I was working in Compton Unified School District several years ago, and the I think it surprises people when you tell them the demographics because it's not what we see on TV or whatever. <laughs> um, but it's I think in Compton, I think the demographics at the time were like eighty-seven percent Latino, and then twelve percent black, and then the one percent was other, which really just meant either Samoan or Cambodian. <laughs> Um, and that was what it was. And so I noticed a lot of influence of Latino culture with my black students, even because that was the culture that they were growing up in. And that was the language that they were hearing. Maybe their parents themselves were not, but I just really noticed that across the board and their teachers were, you know, and so as you're talking about linguistic diversity, I'm also thinking about the classrooms I've worked in and the teachers I've worked with that I haven't I've been very lucky to have worked with diverse communities, like diverse teaching communities. And, but I think that's a huge point to bring up, but the goals, so the TH goal. And then I also see a lot of grammar goals that the grammar is not, that was on my list too. <laughs> yeah. Like, you know, TH, I think is a common one that most people know. I still see it, but the grammar is a huge one. Like multiple meaning words don't exist in Spanish thinking about different verb conjugations, like irregular past tense verbs do not exist in Spanish. And so seeing some of those goals, and I feel bad because I'll get to IEPs and I'll say, oh, this goal is actually inappropriate. I didn't work on it, but here's what I worked on. Or I'll have to call that IEP to change the goal, which is a pain, but it is what it is, right? But I think that's such a good point that you bring up about making sure that we're writing appropriate goals and advocating across across the board of what that looks like. And I think also when you talk about grammar, I think people don't often, they often don't realize just the grammar differences or the differences in syntax that will be present when you have a student who is exposed to Spanish or you have a student who speaks African-American English. Like there are things that make sense for them to do grammar wise. And I think that kind of my, my other point under this whole, we need to advocate a kind of action item and thing we need to know is also just ex- understanding and explaining code switching, understanding it us ourselves, and then also explaining it to teachers. Cause I'll frequently get teachers saying that, you know, well, the student is using incorrect grammar and their grammar makes complete and total sense within the context of African-American English or their grammar makes complete and total sense within the context of Spanish-influenced English. So I think getting people to understand code switching and getting people to validate code switching, you know, again, it doesn't have to be standardized American English for it to be valid or for it to be well-received or even for it to be academic, which is controversial to some people. But I have an example of, of just thinking about how if someone sounds like they speak Spanish-influenced English or someone sounds like they speak African-American English, that could impact their ability to get jobs, the interactions that they have with law enforcement, just their overall perceptions by society. Like, for example, in the Trayvon Martin court case, uh, one of his witnesses, Rachel Jantel, was a native speaker of Haitian Creole. And so the jurors that listened to her said that they thought she was a liar because she just didn't speak English correctly because of how she sounded. So I think 
as SLPs, we feel like, well, how can I influence something that's that big or that's that great? And, you know, 70% of us are in the schools. So that's like a lot of people. We have a lot of ability to influence and teach people about code switching, teach people about Spanish influence English, teach people about African-American English and do the work to dismantle the centering of standardized American English and just the centering of English as all that is, you know, academic and correct and approachable, so on and so forth. So I feel like that's heavy, but I think I believe in us as SLPs that we are the ones that can do it. Yeah, I think you're right, you know, and I know that, I mean, you gave us a lot, so I'm still kind of processing (laughs) everything that you gave us, but I really love that concept of us educating the teachers, educating. I mean, this happened just last week in the lunchroom, actually. I was... I was not eating lunch. I was making coffee, (laughs) but there was two teachers that were in the lunchroom. One is Latina and she said something to one of the other teachers and the other teacher, her first name starts with a V and I, I don't, I don't want to like out this person. I mean, not that anybody's going to know them, but the Latina teacher was saying it with an accent, but it wasn't that thick of an accent. I understood her, but then again, you know, I understand a lot of things, Um, but it wasn't that thick of an accent. And the other teacher was very rude to her and kept saying, no, this is how to say my name. It's not, it's not, it's And I just was like, Hey, why don't we take a deep breath? Like, that's what I heard her say. It's okay. <laughs> but right. It was a- I don't know, someone whose last name has continuously for like the past almost 30 years been pronounced as McCarthy. <laughs> My levels of sympathy are so low for that. Um, oh, right. No. Right. And so, you know, it was, I just took a step in because the other teacher is a friend of mine. And I just said, Hey, why don't we take a deep breath? Like, that's what I heard her say. She just wanted to say, and, and the other teacher just wanted to say something like, I like your shirt or I like your dress, or it was a compliment, like, and she didn't quite get there. And it was this whole thing. And I think the other teacher and I were talking about it later. And I just said, okay, like, there's a lot of education that needs to happen, just like what you're saying, because I don't want this to happen to my students in that classroom, you know, and we do have students in my particular district that move here from out of the country. I have two right now that have, I'm working with interpreters to get them assessed that have been referred and it's speech sound disorders that are appropriate within their, you know, that are inappropriate for their language. Right. And, but anyway, that's a whole nother thing. I'm digressing a ton, but I think that it is really important. I mean, I saw that this last week, at my particular school. And I think sometimes, you know, we think Southern California is this haven for progressive ideas and activities and whatnot. And that's not necessarily the case. And I love the hopefulness that you bring to, to this of, Hey, this is a really awesome role that we get to sit in and we do get to have this impact. And, you know, you're right. We're the ones who kind of understand this maybe on a deeper level, especially when we take courses like this, where we're learning from you. So my next question that I have that's on topic, but not quite within our framework, is if somebody has a student that they think has a dialectical difference or grammar differences that might be due to a heritage language, what do you recommend that they do? Like, where should they look for resources? Hmm. Ask that question again. I need more time to think. Okay, I will. I will absolutely ask that question. 
Yeah, I love the idea of appropriate goals, the idea of of teaching other teachers about code switching. I think that's huge. You know, do you ever do you ever teach code switching to your students? I, you're working with middle school and high school students. Do you ever teach them about code switching? No, actually, I haven't really taught them about code switching. I don't, it's something that I, it's challenging. It's challenging because I don't believe in code switching. Not that I don't believe that it exists. I just don't believe that we should do it. So I really struggle with this, especially as someone who works with, I mean, I I would bet that like most of your caseload is boys. Most of my caseload is black and brown boys. So I really struggle with this a lot. Like, I want to dismantle this thing, but I also know they need to assimilate into society. It's really hard. I don't, it's, it's really challenging, especially like as a black woman who shows up the way that I do, like, I don't, if people just looked at my name and heard me talk, they wouldn't say this is a black person. (laughs) That wouldn't necessarily be their first thought. And I know it's not their first thought because that's the feedback that I've gotten my entire life. So I was raised a very specific way and my parents were very hard on me about my grammar and about how I sounded and how I spoke, especially in public. So I don't know. It's really challenging. That's not a great answer, but it's really challenging. I think that's a great answer Uh, because I think, you know, that idea of, I know in the past what I learned, I mean, I graduated from grad school quite a few years ago. And it was this idea of like, yes, we, like, it wasn't, we weren't even having this conversation about code switching. We were just talking about standardized American English, right? And we were talking about differences when it came to maybe Spanish speakers, but maybe not necessarily, and some differences when I do remember there was a lecture that we had on African-American English. And that was about it. But then we were also like, it kind of moved that we were supposed to talk about code switching and teaching our students when it's appropriate to code switch and write academic papers and have academic conversations with their professors. And now I am seeing this shift of like, why, why are we saying this is the gold standard, especially when we see the demographics of the U S change so much. Uh, I was recently at a lecture this last or two weekends ago, and they were talking about how Gen Z is like, they are the, I can't remember exactly what the statistic is, but the majority of Gen Z are bicultural people. And I thought that that was really awesome and fascinating and cool to see. And I thought, man, that's really going to impact our field in terms of, of language and how we assess language. And so thank you for giving us that very real answer of, I struggle with it. I want them. And you mentioned it earlier with the way that society looks at standard American English versus dialectical differences. That's a good thing for us to sit with and kind of reflect on why we would teach code switching or why we wouldn't and to have a stand on it. So thank you, Megan. That was a fantastic answer. You said that wasn't a good answer and I loved it. Are you looking to move up on the pay scale? You can through speechtherapypd.com in collaboration with University of the Pacific. Start earning graduate-level credits today. Courses are evidence-based and practical. Win-win. Check out speechtherapypd.com for more information on earning graduate-level credits. All right. So your three points, I just want to make sure that we, your three points are, you know, check out that website, check out the research 
of how to be culturally responsive. It's not that hard. Just jump in and do it. And then number three, understand our, our students and their culture so that we can advocate for them. Okay, That's great. it. <laughs> That's it. Awesome. That's it. Piece of cake, right? <laughs> okay. So then what are the two resources that you're bringing to us today? So the two resources, this is where I'm happy at the beginning, you said that I'm like an educator, like I see things through the lens of an educator, because that's very true. And this is that's about to jump out of me right now. So there's something called universal design for learning. And I don't know if every SLP knows about it. But I think it's something that can be really useful for us as SLPs. I know people might say, well, that's a teaching strategy. But I think it can be useful for us as SLPs. So basically, universal design for learning is a pedagogy that is essentially saying provide students with multiple means of engagement, meaning give them multiple ways to engage with a topic. Maybe you're giving them a reading, a video, a tactile activity, et cetera giving them uh, multiple means of representation of something, giving them uh, multiple means of action and expression. So giving them the opportunity to express their knowledge and demonstrate their knowledge in different ways. I won't dive extremely deep into what universal design for learning is because it's very like extensive, but it basically talks about if you give all students an equal opportunity to succeed, then students will be able to succeed. And I think us as SLPs, it's something that we do naturally. But I think if we have a student where it's really challenging and you're noticing like, okay, they're not meeting this goal. I think having UDL in your pocketbook as a way to change how you're demonstrating that goal to the student or teaching that student the goal, I think that could be helpful. But the reason why I bring up UDL um, and it ties into the other resource that I have. But the reason why I bring up UDL is because there was research done in 2017 that showed that using UDL was most effective or was very effective for English language learners. And a lot of the students that we work with, whether they are classified as English language learners or they are not classified as English language learners, a lot of the students that we work with, when we have, you know, Black, Latino, Asian students are really coming to us as English language learners. You know, they're going to be exposed to a different language or a different dialect. So using a teaching strategy and a pedagogy that is best for English language learners is something that I think definitely helps support linguistic cultural responsivity. Awesome. Thank you. Can you give us an example? I'm a big fan of UDL. Like you said, like it's something that we should we should, if you don't know about it, you've got a Google UDL, Universal Design for Learning. I'm looking to have a guest on the podcast to talk about it, but it's so vast and so big that I'm having a hard time finding somebody who's like, in an hour, you want me to talk about it? So I might know uh, someone. Anyway, thank you so much for bringing that up. And yes, the research for English language learners is really awesome for it, for our diverse learners who learn, you know, maybe differently than our general mainstream kids. Like it's something that can be used with them too. So how are some ways that you have used this pedagogy to work with your multilingual or multidialectical students? I think the one thing that I use always, because I don't necessarily use everything in harmony, but one thing I always do is multiple means of engagement. 
Okay. So I always give students multiple ways to engage with the activity. So I like to have it, the activity presented to them auditorily and verbally. Like I'm always going to give them, did I say auditorily and verbally? That's the same thing. <laughs> I like to have them have some, a visual and the auditory piece. And if I need to, we'll get kinesthetic with it. I have a student who has Down syndrome and he's an AAC user and he loves basketball. So what do we do during his sessions? We play basketball and we target different pieces of language because previously I had tried other methods with him uh, pushing into his classroom. I tried doing lessons with him and I wasn't super successful in presenting the information to him that way, but using uh, presenting it to him where he has a way to use his body and get out energy has demonstrated a lot of growth for this student. It's been really helpful. So I think I'm in a unique situation where I can do things like that, have a lot of support, which is very rare in the speech world, but I have a lot of support where I work. I have two incredible slippers. Shout out my two slippers. I'm not going to say their names because people don't need to know where I work, <laughs> but I have two amazing slippers. They're phenomenal. And I'm able to do like these really unique and super specified activities with students. So I, I'm not telling other people like, hey, go outside and play basketball because that just may not be realistic for many SLPs. But I think that's one way that I've used you is I've given that student a different way to engage that speaks to that student's interests and their best mode of learning, which is learning kinesthetically. All right. Awesome. Thank you for that example of, so when we're talking about universal design for learning, we're thinking about all those different learning styles, bringing in all those different ways for students to engage. And then the research is showing that for our English language learners, that that's really helpful for them. And I, I'm even thinking back to utilizing this information, even with our educators that we're, we're collaborating with, you know, that piece that you said about advocacy, because I know it hasn't happened to me this school year, but I have in school years past gotten referrals and tried to explain to teachers, no, this is a language difference, not a language disorder, but I can also follow up with them and give them some of these strategies that they can use in their classroom, even though they're not necessarily getting my direct support. I can support the teacher in this way. So exactly. Were you going to say more? No, I was going to say like, exactly. Like you can also take this information to, you know, classroom teachers, to the SPED coordinator, ed specialists, the principal, and, you know, say like, Hey, this is what I'm using to support students. Like maybe this may be helpful to get training on this or implement this in the classroom so that we can reduce the amount of referrals that aren't appropriate that I'm receiving. Yeah. I love that. All right. I think we're ready for resource number two. So what you just talked about, the inappropriate referrals, leads me to resource number two. So like I said, friends, you know, I'm a teacher first, and I feel like I'm an SLP second sometimes. Like everything, it's just I'm always with my teacher brain. So the next thing that I'm talking about is called response to intervention. So as we've said several times today, we frequently get inappropriate referrals for our multilingual and multidialectal students. And research shows that Black and brown students, especially boys, are more likely to receive uh, speech and language services inappropriately than any other group. So they are frequently referred for services, excuse me, that they don't need. So what, what is response to intervention? It's basically 
like a three-tier structure. So the first tier is tier one, and that's classroom instruction. The second tier is tier two, and that's targeted small group instruction. And the third tier is tier three, and that's intensive individual intervention. So that would be like an IEP. So how does that apply to us as SLPs? So us as SLPs, when people come to us and say, I think this kid needs to be assessed, instead of us just doing an assessment, we can do what is called an RTI process. So we can screen the student and first see, does this student even qualify for RTI? Is speech RTI even appropriate for this student? And then once that determination is made, then we can create an RTI group. So we can have a group of RTI kids or we can put them in a, another group. Maybe they just need a little bit of support with an S or lateralizing their S, like just a little. They're like right on the cusp, but they need that extra bit of support. Maybe they need a little bit of support with um, expressive language, so on and so forth. But RTI is great for students who don't necessarily need a three-year-long IEP, but they need just a little bit of support to get to where they need to be, like to get on age level um, and grade level. And I think it's really important for us as SLPs to advocate for RTI, response to intervention, because we, I see so many kids that are overqualified, especially coming out of the pandemic. There are so many kids that it's just assessment, 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 assessment. I did an initial on an 11th grader. <laughs> that was last year. I did an initial on an 11th grader. Very, very odd. So I think using RTI reduces the disproportionality of Black and Latino students receiving special education services that they do not need, because that's a really big issue. And research also shows that a good majority of people who are in prison have IEPs. So when we are overqualifying students, we're supporting the school to prison pipeline. I know that sounds intense and heavy, but as SLPs, you know, we want to make sure that we're not overqualifying students and response to intervention is a really great way to not overqualify students, give teachers in class support and education on how they can support students who just need a little bit of support. And most importantly, it makes our caseloads more manageable. You know, if we are assessing 10 kids and, you know, five are qualifying that really don't need the service, but they failed the test because anyone can fail a test in reality. So if we're assessing those kids, five are failing, well, our, our caseload is increasing. And it's not a field where we have a tremendous amount of support. It's not, you know, we rarely do people actually have slip you know, people are here with 70 kids in three different schools and you're case managing all of the kids. So even if cultural responsivity isn't your goal, doing RTI will help keep your caseload more manageable and make your life more manageable. Even if you're like, I don't care about cultural responsivity, RTI will just help you also. So it's really great cultural responsive practice and it's really great for reducing students qualifying for services that they do not need. You made so many great points. I don't even know where to begin. I think I'm going to go backwards. I think the last thing that I was processing as you were talking was this idea of, you know, and it is important, right? Representation matters. Making sure that our kids are seeing themselves in the materials we're using matters. One of the courses I went to at California Speech and Hearing Convention was making sure that our, our classroom decorations are even representative of the students on our caseload. 
So when I first think of cultural responsiveness, that's what I think of, but I really love that you're going deeper and you're saying, no, even our very practices, we need to think about them as being culturally responsive. You know, this idea of RTI and reducing the amount of black and brown boys that we're qualifying and giving them that extra support. And you made that point about the pandemic too, that is like, Woo, I'm up to 70 students as of right now, and I still have some more initials to go. <laughs> the pressure but is getting worse. It is. And, you know, it's one of those things that I had somebody on the podcast back in January, I think, and she talked about multi-tiered systems of support. That's RTI, just different acronyms, acronyms for it, MTSS. And it's finding the space within our schedules to do that. But that idea of, hey, if we're doing this, we're reducing the amount of students that we're probably overqualifying. And, you know, I'm guilty of it right now of overqualifying students because I can't give them that support on the RTI model, right? Yeah. Like that is something that I talked to my boss about uh, two weeks ago, actually, was, hey, I need more space in my schedule because I need to be supporting my teachers. It's part of my scope of practice. And I brought up what you're saying, the pandemic. We had a IEP yesterday for a student. He's got multiple speech errors in fourth grade. Like he qualifies for speech 100%. But they were trying to do an academic referral for him, but he's making progress in the MTSS process. He's not reading and he's in fourth grade, but he's making progress. He is reading, I should say. He's reading at the first grade level and that's problematic. He's in four, we're about to be in fifth grade here but he's making progress. It's not a learn and he has the aptitude to learn. It's not a learning disability. And the team was just not understanding where I was coming from. They're like, this kid needs help. This kid needs help. He does need help. He's getting help. Yeah. And you know, that's the thing. There's a reason why in the spring, it's kind of like a double hockey sticks for IEPs because so many schools, they do RTI in the fall. And, oh, if the kid hasn't made XYZ progress, we're going to go ahead and qualify him in the spring. And that's the problem. Good RTI lasts basically a full school year because you do you do like six to eight week sessions of treatment. Then you go back and you reevaluate. So you see what growth has been made. Okay, if the kid's not making growth, you change your strategies and your supports. Then you go back and do another six to eight weeks with the student you see, are they making changes? Are they making progress? Okay, we're seeing they're making progress. We're going to do another six to eight week round, right? So at that point, you've gone the full school year. So if you see the student is making progress with RTI, then you should absolutely keep it. And I'm not opposed to, because sometimes, especially with articulation, you'll see some students that probably are not going to do great on the GIFTA, but I know that, okay, if we work with this kid for like maybe one school year, do RTI for one school year, I know this kid will make the growth and we can just bounce them. We don't need to do a three-year IEP because I think people really need to look at the gravity of what an IEP is. Imagine if you're renting an apartment and they ask you to enter a three-year lease. That's a really long time. That's a really big commitment. You're saying, I'm not going to leave this apartment for three years. I'm not going to move anywhere else for three years. I'm not leaving the city for three years, you know? So an IEP is a three-year long commitment. So I think as SLPs, if we're advocating for RTI and incorporating it more, 
can help to reduce our caseload, so on and so forth. And also, we don't necessarily have to do the RTI because it's not an IEP. So we can work with teachers, we can work with paraeducators and provide them with the training, the resources and tools so that they can also support that student in the classroom setting. And we can come in and do check-ins on a regular basis. So up front, it's heavy, like it's a heavy load up front. But once you get it started and you get your system going, it really is most beneficial for students. And it's really beneficial for us in our caseloads. Yeah, it is. Are you taking advantage of the certificate tracker? Not only does it store your certificates from all of your evidence-based and practical courses from speechtherapypd.com, but you can also upload certificates earned from other CE providers. It's the easiest way to store and keep track of your CEUs. Just another perk of membership. I know when I had a SLIPA in my previous district, I was much more involved in the classrooms and helping teachers provide strategies and, and brainstorming with teachers like, oh, have you tried, you know, adding this movement activity to this? Because like you said, that is something that we kind of naturally do. We kind of naturally do those UDL things within our speech room when we've got just a few kids. But I am totally going to come to my administrator this week and say, hey, this will also be a culturally responsive because I know that's something that our district is dealing with. We've got a lot of black and brown boys on IEPs for behavior or whatever, right? And that's something that we're seeing, like that we're getting dinged on as a district, which every, I think most districts are at this point, right? Like that's what the research is showing. So I I really appreciate that. And I know too, when I was doing RTI at that previous district, we also... And I was talking to my principal, she's not my boss necessarily, but I was talking to her about it this week about, and this was in response to that student where I said, he's not appropriate for special ed. And I said, we need to, we got creative in that previous district. Money was tight, but there were some local colleges and some local universities. And we started getting these college volunteer tutors that we're wanting to get into speech programs that are competitive, wanting to get into things. And so I was training them on what RTI looked like for some language lessons and for some speech stuff. And then they were doing it. And then, you know, the teachers started utilizing them for more of those academic ones too. But then I was just going in for progress monitoring and that was it, which was, you know, so helpful. So, you know, Megan, thank you, because this is really like inspiring to me to come back, you know, at the end. I really am at that point in the school year where I'm like, oh, just a few more weeks. But it's like, no, I need to stay in the game. I need to keep working here. I need to keep being inspired. And you've totally inspired me to like reignite the RTI flame of not only is this best practice, but really if I'm thinking about it, it's culturally responsive. And it's like, it. I just love that idea of being culturally responsive from the ground level and not just that, not that it's performative. But from the ground level, thinking about what practices we have, how do we qualify kids? How do we not qualify kids? And thinking about it from that ground level, Megan, is so, so huge for me. So thank you for bringing that piece. Yay. I'm happy it was helpful. I was very nervous putting this together. I was like, is this going to make sense? Like, are people going to be like, why are you mentioning this? This is very teachery, but I'm happy to get this positive feedback that, you know, you're getting something out of it and it makes sense. (laughs) It does. It does make sense. And like I said, I would have never thought about RCI being culturally responsive and something that I needed to be doing 
in that light, right? It's something that I know I need to be doing to keep my caseload down, to be more of a service, you know, to my school site. And so, but I just, I love that idea. And I know you got a little, a little heavy there. I don't want to say controversial because I don't know, uh, from my perspective, it's not necessarily right of um, that prison to the school to prison pipeline. And like, what is our role in that? I think that's a really good point to bring up. If you're unfamiliar with that term, definitely look it up. Definitely do some research there. That's a whole nother hour conversation at least. <laughs> Definitely. But I like that just that question you posed to us is what is our role with the prison to pipeline or the school to prison pipeline? Because we might think that we don't have a role that's outside of us. That's not us. But research is showing that the majority of, of men in, in prison have IEPs. And I think that's such a good point to bring up to us too, to think about. So, you know, Megan, I appreciate the way you are approaching this topic from your teacher standpoint, from your speech standpoint, from your own personal experiences as well. So this brings us to our last point. You have given us some actionable strategies already, but what is kind of that last actionable strategy that you want to give us? So I feel like I gave you all a lot. So what I wrote down is advocate and implement. That is my actionable strategy for you all advocate for these things and implement these things, advocate for um, RTI, advocate for UDL, advocate for uh, cultural responsiveness when it comes to language, advocate for our multilingual, multidialectal students and implement teaching strategies that support them. Yeah, those are my, I feel like it gave a lot of information. So the ball is in your court to advocate, implement, and also educate yourself. We can never stop learning, you know, as a Black person, like, sure, I'm familiar with African-American English, but African-American English is different regionally. You know, there's things that they say in the Bay Area. There's things that we say in LA. There's stuff people say in New York and in Miami, so on and so forth. Like, there's, I can never stop learning about that. It's something that I'm never going to stop learning, and I love to learn about it. You can never learn too much about someone's language and culture and the things that are important to them. So advocate and implement. Those are my action strategies for you all. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. And I like that, you know, I know that sometimes we come to these PDs where we're like, just give us the things that I can do tomorrow. Give me that one thing that I know I can do. And I really actually like that today you didn't give us just this clear cut this is what you need to do to be culturally responsive, right? Like you need to just pull out this book that is representative of your students. You gave us so many things to process because I think what, at least when I'm reflecting on my own learning that we've just done, it's going to actually help me own it a little bit better. And it's going to help me understand my students and the process at a deeper level. So I really appreciate, I mean, you're an educator, you're an educator, Megan. You know, that's probably what you're doing with your students and what you've done with your students in the past is that idea of, no, I'm not going to give you the blueprint. You're going to come up with the blueprint, but I'm going to give you the framework for your blueprint, which is hard work, but I appreciate the hard work that you've tasked us with. And I just really love that the concepts that you gave us today are not your stereotypical culturally responsiveness you know, action steps or resources. You know, I, I'm not going to lie, Megan. I totally thought today was going to be like, check out this Instagram to learn about, you know, these culturally responsive books. And there's this SLP that's doing this. And 
I love that what you've given us is from the ground up. It's accessible for any student we work with, but especially thinking about how it's going to better our our multilingual and multidialectical students. I love that. Can you review your three things we need to know one more time? So our three things that we need to know is about the Center for Culturally Responsive Teaching and Learning. They have a really great pedagogy that's called Validate, Affirm, Build, and Bridge, or VAB for short. Um, I think the second thing that you all need to know is that cultural responsivity is not hard. We just have to do the research and find ways to connect with students through, you know, music, food, cultural holidays, and culture in general. But the second thing is it's really not hard to do. It just takes some research and digging. And a lot of that research we can do with our students. And then the third thing says, um, you know, as SLPs, we have to advocate for our multilingual and multidialectal students and clients. And by advocating, we have to first understand them. We have to understand what their language differences are. We have to understand what their culture is. And once we understand that, then we're better able to advocate for them and support them. Fantastic. Cynthia also has the same thoughts that I did. The thought of, she said, I never thought of RTI in the terms you've presented it in terms of advocating. And I agree with her. I've always thought of it in terms of like advocating for myself, of lowering my caseload and making sure that I'm not having to do a million assessments every year. Uh, But I've never really thought of it in terms of advocating for my students is what's best for them and keeping them out of special education if they don't need to be there. Uh, And I think that that is, I just, I am so excited. (laughs) I'm so excited to take that and to like be on fire for our students and making sure that that we don't have that role in the school to prison pipeline. And thank you again for just reviewing your three things. Can you review your two resource points for us? So my two resources were universal design for learning and response to intervention. Those are my two resources. Fantastic. And then your last actionable strategy for us to to take with us tomorrow. Advocate and implement. Implement and advocate. Don't hesitate. And also learn. Advocate, implement, educate. Awesome. So your experience is, I'll get to that question in a moment or that thought in a moment, but your experience was you were an interventionist. So that means that you were pretty much working within the RTI model, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. So that makes sense why you have such a deep understanding of RTI, a deep love for it. Do you have any examples of how you've seen RTI, you know, really like any examples where it just like clicked for a student or you were able to get the student kind of out of that RTI process and like some major success that we can kind of inspire us to, to move forward? Yes. So when I first started doing RTI, I really just got thrown into it. So I was doing like this teacher on special assignment position where I like I covered a maternity leave for one semester. Then the second semester, they had me do intervention for reading. So I worked with a group of third graders. Never in my life had I done reading intervention, had no idea what I was doing. But my mom, both my parents are special education teachers. So my mom, her specialty is reading. So I asked her a lot of questions did a lot of researching, did a lot of digging, and I figured out a great strategy, I guess, to teach kids reading. And so I had my intervention groups. I saw those students pretty frequently because it was like a grade level of students who had a lot of 
constant, like a revolving door of teachers. Like at the beginning of the school year, a teacher quit in first grade and then they had a sub until second semester. Then in second grade, a teacher quit during the second semester and then they had a substitute. So it was like a group of students who had never had a consistent teacher. And so that impacted their learning. So as I digress, I was able to work with those students and I was able to pretty much get like a whole grade level of students up to reading level in about, I would say three months, three or four months. Wow, that is fantastic. And as you know, reading is such a major part of our lives or it can be right. Like we want children to read for fun and to unpack that. And so you had such a, such a profound experience on their lives. So I love, I love hearing that. And I love hearing that, like you were able to do that in three months, you know, that gives us a lot of kind of perspective of like, okay, this is doable. We can do this. So thank you for sharing. And Gil has, she has a great comment and I just appreciate her her authenticity with it. She says that she agrees that code switching is a really tough topic. She's a former English major. And so it's tough for her to not to want to focus on learning standard English. And, you know, especially being an English major, like that was probably drilled into you. So just that's a great thing that she's processing what that is like. And I do, that was a great, you know, some great points that you made about code switching, that idea of, well, I'm weighing what society says, but I also want to dismantle this thing. And I think that was, that's good for us to also think on and reflect on as to why we, why we would teach code switching or why we're using it in our own practice, or maybe why we're not. And then that way we can advocate that to, when we have our own language for it, we can advocate that to other teachers. So I just appreciate, Megan, everything that you've brought to us today. You are almost done with your CF year. Right? I'm I should have my C's by the end of this month, actually. God Whoa. willing. Yes, I'm done. Yes. So I should have them. Hopefully my ASHA C's and my state C's. I'm speaking it into existence. They will be here by the end of this month. California is going to process my application by the end of this month. It is going to happen. Awesome. 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 I love that. Yeah. We're going to celebrate that with you when you get those and you know, but we don't, what I was about to say is like, you don't need your C's. Like you do need your C's. I'm not trying to say that. What I'm trying to say is like, you know, I just really appreciate all the experience and all the wisdom that you brought to this. And our C's are just that little, those little extra things after our name. And I just really want to validate you and like all that you bring to our profession and all that we've taken from you today. And so I appreciate that. If people want to get in touch with you or they have more questions as they're processing, or they have questions about RTI and how to do things, how can they reach out to you? Awesome. So I do have an Instagram page. It's for my business that I'm in the process of creating, but my Instagram page is greatergood underscore edu. Okay. Okay. So at greatergood underscore edu. Fantastic. And that's the best way to get a hold of you if we have any questions about UDL or RTI. Yes. And then I also have an email and the email address is info, I-N-F-O, at greatergoodedu.org. Okay. Fantastic. So info at greatergoodedu.org or Instagram greatergood 
underscore edu. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Megan. Is there anything else that you want to leave us with? Any other tidbits? Any other tidbits? I feel like I talked so much. I think, you know, some of this can be uncomfortable. It can be uncomfortable to separate from our own thought process and our own ideas or our own practices. And even doing it towards the end of the school year can be tiring. I'm tired. (laughs) I, I took a nap today before I did this. It's very tiring time of the school year, but I would say do it for the kids. Push yourself for the kids. I went into speech language pathology because kindergarten through my master's program, I had like two or three black teachers. So in the field of speech language pathology, it's 3% black. So do it for the kids. You know, if you're not necessarily representative of them culturally, try to find ways where you are able to still show up for them. You know, I'm not a Latina, but I show up for my Latino students. You know, I speak Spanish. I give them affirmations in Spanish. I'll compliment them in Spanish. I asked my friends, like, what are some mama bear things that you would say? Like, how do you redirect students? My favorite is like, una vez más y vas a ver, which means like one more time and you're going to see. So just go the extra mile for your students. I know it can be uncomfortable and it can be challenging, but I'm on a really long tangent, but just do it for the kids. Show up for them because they show up for you. <laughs> so I just love do it, it for the kids. I think that's so great. And, you know, I love the idea of like, I love that you are so passionate about being the person you needed when you were growing up. I think that that's so valuable. And I also love your experience and your, you sharing your experience of, okay, like I'm not Latina, but I'm going to speak Spanish. I'm going to show up. I'm going to affirm and celebrate who you are. And I just love that. So thank you so much for just being you, Megan, and for sharing your wisdom with us. And I just can't wait to run into you in the future and to see what great things you have in store for you. Everyone else, thank you so much for joining us. We will see you back here soon. If you please, just as a reminder, log into your speechtherapypd.com account at the conclusion of today's course and complete all modules, especially the one entitled quiz by the end of day today to get your CEU credit. Hopefully, Mara, that answers your question. And Mara, I'm really glad that you were able to have some takeaways for early intervention as well. All right, Megan, have a great evening, everyone else. Have a great evening wherever you are, and we'll see you back here soon. Each episode has an accompanying audio course on speechtherapypd.com available for 0.1 ASHA CEUs. Use the unique coupon code for listeners of this podcast, LIFE20, for $20 off an audio course subscription. Audio course subscriptions give access to all existing and new audio courses from speechtherapypd.com. Again, use the code LIFE20 to access more than 200 hours of audio courses for $59 a year. Visit speechtherapypd.com slash life for more information and start earning CEs today. Thanks for joining us at This Speech Life. Remember to go to speechtherapypd.com to learn more about earning ASHA CEUs. We appreciate your positive reviews and support and would love for you to write a quick review and subscribe. (music) 